Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let's let's just be honest. Let's let's just say it. Arcade Fire is weird. Just about everything they've done in their career has not only been unconventional, but against the rules. They rarely give interviews. They won't license their music. They'd rather spend weeks working with the people of Haiti than lounging by a swimming pool someplace. They won't even stay on stage when they perform. Yet, whatever they've done has worked. Junos, Grammys, Brits, the Polaris Music Prize. Members have had their work nominated for an Academy Award, Humanitarian Awards. Critics have fallen all over them for years. They've made all the important magazine covers. Big-name stars all the way up to Chris Martin and U2 and David Bowie have lavished praise on them. And they're one of the few new rock bands to emerge in the 21st century that is actually capable of selling out an arena. Okay, so they haven't sold a gazillion records, but who has these days? Still, they've managed to move several million, which is very respectable. And all those records were made for a small indie label, not a major Oh, and get this, a big chunk of the money they've made, a million-dollar chunk, was donated to a Haitian relief organization. There were no reports of legal issues or tabloid scandals. There's no drunken antics or drug use or any kind of antisocial behavior, unless you count it when singer Wynn Butler gets into foul trouble when he's playing in a celebrity basketball game. Now, don't get me wrong, all this is very good, very cool, but in the context of rock and roll, it's also very weird. How am I supposed to come up with all kinds of juicy bits when there's nothing to talk about? There's no nothing salacious about these people. What? Am I supposed to just do my best? What's that supposed to mean? Thanks a lot. All right. Let's see what I can do. This is Who the Hell is Arcade Fire Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Arcade Fire in the Suburbs, the title track of their third album, which came out on August 2nd, 2010. And in typical Arcade Fire fashion, they had to do it their way. The Suburbs was released as a double A-side single. That's a reference back to the old days of vinyl when a group would release two great songs on a 7-inch single. Both were regarded equally as good, and both were expected to be hits. There was no designated secondary track or B-side. The Beatles did this a lot back in the day, and so did the Rolling Stones. And in the case of the Suburbs, it came with another song from the album called Month of May. Of the two, though, the Suburbs is the one that became the more popular of the two. Interesting video, too. It was directed by Spike Jones and featured Wynn and Regine as cops. Much of the video consists of scenes from Spike's short film Scenes from the Suburbs. And there was a problem during that shoot, which happened in Austin, Texas. A few months before everybody got together to make the video, there was a mass shooting at nearby Fort Hood where 13 people were killed and 30 were injured. People in the area were still a little anxious about the whole thing, so when they saw what appeared to be soldiers in wool masks, they called 911. False alarm, it was just members of the cast for this Arcade Fire video. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of a program designed to figure out Arcade Fire. Part one was all about the band's formation and the first two albums. This show will be all about the suburbs and forward. 
Let's reset first. Neon Bible, the second album, was a finalist for the 2007 Polaris Music Prize. It got a nomination for Best Alternative Album at the Grammys, which it lost to Icky Thump from the White Stripes, and it won a Juno in the same category. So this is two albums in a row where this indie band from Canada, of all places, hit it out of the park on the global stage. They couldn't possibly do that again. I mean, you know how it works, right? You have your whole life to write your first album. The second album is tougher because you're exhausted from promoting the first record. And the third album, it's almost guaranteed to be a disappointment because the creative tank is dry. But not in this case. In fact, the third Arcade Fire album beat out those first two records combined. Remember how I said on the first show that Wynn and William Butler grew up in that gated, planned community north of Houston, Woodlands, Texas? That formed the basis of The Suburbs, this semi-autobiographical, semi-apocalyptic look at that existence. The album was recorded in three places, Wynn and Regine Butler's house in Montreal, that church that they had bought in Farnham, Quebec, and in New York. Its release was preceded by two videos. The first was a more or less straight ahead performance video that was filmed in London, and we already talked about the title track. The second, well, that was extra cool. Using HTML5, which at the time was a relatively new programming language for web applications, a guy named Chris Milk designed a fascinating interactive video that incorporated Google Maps and Google Street View and developed with the help of some of the coders responsible for the Chrome browser. Now, if you've never experienced this video, I'm not going to spoil it. Just go to thewildernessdowntown.com and follow the instructions. And it's best if you use Chrome as your browser. It is really really cool. You simply must try it. Mind blowing. The song used for the project was this one, the second of six singles from the suburbs. It's We Used to Wait. Arcade Fire and We Used to Wait from the 2010 album The Suburbs. And again, you should really try the interactive video that goes along with the song. Go to thewildernessdowntown.com, enter your street address, and watch what happens. As successful and as critically acclaimed as the first two Arcade Fire albums were, they had nothing on The Suburbs. The record debuted at number one in Canada, the US, the UK, and Ireland. It also reached number one in Norway, Portugal, and Belgium. It was also top ten in Australia, Denmark, Germany, Mexico, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Finland, and New Zealand. The album went platinum in Canada, platinum in the UK, and gold in the US. It won Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards. It won Album of the Year at the Judo Awards. It was named Best International Album at the Brit Awards. And it won the Polaris Music Prize. There has never, ever been an album to win that kind of sweep, ever. And I didn't even include all the nominations in the various categories of the various award ceremonies where they didn't win. And there were at least half a dozen media outlets that named the suburbs Album of the Year. Now again, let's keep in mind that this is an independent band from Montreal that records for an indie label in Durham, North Carolina. But, lest you think that the album sold in big numbers, you would be incorrect. Neon Bible may have sold a million copies worldwide. Maybe. The Suburbs probably sold a little more than that. This is not a global multi-platinum selling act, which I find exceedingly interesting. How can you be so critically acclaimed 
and win all these mainstream awards and not sell records by the boatload. I guess this tells you something about the nature of music and the music market in the 21st century and the way people consume music, doesn't it? Let's go with another track. Like I said, a total of six singles were released from the album. Seven, if you want to count that first one as two separate songs. And here's another one. This is Ready to Start. If you remember all the hoopla during the award season that followed the release of that album, that was the Arcade Fire song performed at the Grammys and the Brits. Part two of Who the Hell is Arcade Fire? We'll continue in a sec. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We're trying to learn as much as we possibly can about Arcade Fire. Seldom has a band been so popular and so visible while disclosing so little about themselves. I mentioned earlier about how Arcade Fire found a fan in David Bowie. Why? Well, the music, of course. But he also admired the way the band went about their art without being self-conscious. They reminded Bowie of the way he used to be in the late 60s before he broke through. David Byrne of the Talking Heads wrote at length about how he admired their songcraft and how he heard and saw bits of what his old band used to do in their artsy, semi-world music sort of way back in the day. Same with Bono, who sees in them the same kind of bombast that made U2 famous back in the day. And then there's Peter Gabriel, ex-prog rocker, world music aficionado, and big fan of turning concerts into performance art. Arcade's fire vision of what a concert should be in a big arena can be very close to his. In 2010, he released an album called You Scratch My Back, where he covered songs by some of his favorite artists. There was David Bowie and Paul Simon, Talking Heads, Lou Reed, Neil Young, Radiohead, and Arcade Fire. He chose My Body is a Cage, which appears on the Neon Bible album. This record was followed up by something called And I'll Scratch Yours in 2013. The artist he covered on that first album returned the favor by covering Gabriel songs. And that brought Arcade Fire back to do this one. From 2013, Arcade Fire covering Peter Gabriel, who covered them in 2010. All right, back to the Suburbs album for a second. Where is that house on the cover? It's a real place, but its location is secret. I can tell you, however, that the car belongs to Tyler, one of the band's guitar techs. There are several versions of this album. If you have the vinyl version, do not forget to take the tone arm off the turntable after We Used to Wait finished off side three. Otherwise, you'll be locked into an infinite loop of sound. And speaking of vinyl, the band really wanted to replicate that sound, even with digital copies of the album. How are you going to do that? Well, they recorded each song onto old-school 24-track magnetic tape through a console that dated back to the 1940s. No transistors, no computer chips in this thing, just vacuum tubes. After mixing everything, they pressed each song onto a 12-inch pressing known as a lacquer or acetate. Then they transferred that recording to digital. So in other words, they made a vinyl record and then digitized it directly from the vinyl. Wynn says, the digital is the archive of this physical thing that exists in the world. 
were preserving it and using digital as a mode of distribution, but ultimately something real was made. Okay, that's a nice idea, but when you do something like that, all the really, really low end of the music tends to disappear. So if the suburbs is a little shrill, a little mid-rangey to your ears, now you know why. Or maybe we're just being picky. Let's take a close listen. I know it'll be wildly inaccurate to judge this over the radio, but, you know, maybe. City with no children, arcade fire from the suburbs. This might be a good time to take another detour to Haiti, a country that Arcade Fire cares deeply about. And if we're going to understand the band, we have to comprehend the relationship with Haiti. But it's only getting stronger, and the influences keep going deeper. Haiti is the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, and it's been rocked by hurricanes, earthquakes, violence, corruption, and disease, almost from the moment it became an independent nation in 1804. On part one, we heard about how Regine's family escaped the country from Montreal in the early 1960s to get away from the psycho forces of dictator Papa Doc Duvalier. But that hasn't stopped Regine or the rest of the band from trying to help the people of Haiti. They've donated at least a million dollars in aid relief and have a relationship with an NGO called Partners in Health. After the 7.0 earthquake of January 12, 2010, which killed over 200,000 and left upwards of 2 million homeless, Arcade Fire has been making regular trips to Haiti to help out on the ground. Nothing flashy, they just make the trip and do whatever they can. Let's make a detour back to the Funeral album, which contains a song called Haiti, which is accompanied by a video that was shot entirely on location. Haiti from the Funeral Album. If you're interested in going deeper, Regine blogs about the band's experiences at the group's website. We still have another album to cover, and it was influenced by a lot of the band's Haitian experiences. Back with some stories about Reflector in just a moment. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. In the summer of 2013, some weird symbols started showing up on sidewalks and on walls in several cities around the world. There was London, New York, Chicago, Montreal, Sydney, Los Angeles, Berlin, Rome, and from there it spread to social media. Inside a circle was a square that was in turn divided into nine smaller squares. Each of the small squares contained a letter, an E, F, K, L, O, R, and T, and some were accompanied by the numbers 999. So what was this? Well, it was a guerrilla marketing campaign for the new Arcade Fire album. The symbol was inspired by something called Vive drawings, the kind that are sometimes used in Haitian voodoo. Not the same thing, of course, but that's where the inspiration came from. At 9 a.m. on September 9th, 999, get it? A 12-inch single credited to The Reflectors was released. This, of course, was Arcade Fire. But did you know that David Bowie is on this track? Don't go looking for him in the liner notes, but trust me, he's singing here. Hey, 
The title track of Reflector, Arcade Fire's fourth album, released on October 28, 2013. And a really nice idea about the guerrilla campaign. The execution? Hmm, not so much. Part of the issue was the logos were sometimes considered graffiti and actually caused damage to the surfaces where they were applied. The band had to fess up and apologize, but, you know, give the band credit for trying to turn an album release into something with a wider experience. There were plenty of interesting influences that went into the making of this album. First, Wynn and Regine spent all that time in Haiti, and they soaked up something called rara music, which is used a lot in Haitian parades and processions. Players use instruments made out of whatever they can find, pipes, empty coffee cans, homemade drums, along with various other percussion instruments like maracas. If there are trumpets and saxophones available, great. So you can see how such sounds would appeal to a band full of multi-instrumentalists, right? The band also spent some time with a Brazilian movie called Black Orpheus, which is based on an old Greek story. Again, the rhythm of the music in the movie was studied as well as the themes of isolation and death. And then there was some reading of essays by Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who liked to write about existential things like the notion of reflecting on life and one's present condition. All right, now it all comes together. Family perspective by going back to Haiti, examining ideas of isolation and death, and considering the act of and need for reflection. They brought in James Murphy, who had recently retired LCD Sound System, to co-produce. Plus, they re-engaged Marcus Draves, one of Coldplay's favorite producers. To keep soaking up the new sounds, recording took place in Louisiana and Jamaica. The Jamaican sessions were in an abandoned castle built in 1979 by a guy who eventually went broke. When Reflector finally came out, the cover artwork featured a picture of Rodin's famous sculpture of Orpheus and Eurydice. Again, you know, it all comes together. Like I mentioned, the title track was released as a 12-inch vinyl and a digital download under the name Reflectors ahead of the full release. This was supposed to be all mysterious, but by then, everybody knew what was going on. Then, that same day that the 12-inch came out, September the 9th, there was a secret show by this band called The Reflectors at a Montreal salsa club. Anybody could come in for nine bucks. And some interesting people showed up. Bono, Ben Stiller, Rain Wilson, James Franco, Michael Cera, Zach Galifianakis. And the whole thing was filmed, and immediately after Arcade Fire appeared as the special musical guest on the season opener of Saturday Night Live on September the 29th, a 30-minute special culled from that Salsa Club gig was aired on NBC. I can't remember anyone ever being able to do that before. So how do you accomplish this? Well, good management for one. Their manager is a dude named Scott Roger, and he freely admits that Arcade Fire is a band that is operating way above their pay grade and that by enlisting the right partners, they can get their music heard. Although the band is signed to Merge Records, which, like I've said, is an indie, they still need the clout that a major label has when it comes to marketing and distribution. First, they struck a deal with Capitol Records, which is part of the Universal Music Empire. The company provided what's called back-end services for the release of the Reflector album, which means distribution, promotion, and marketing, something that major labels do extremely well. Manager Rogers and Capital had the connections to speak with NBC and Saturday Night Live about doing something different. Arcade Fire had been a musical guest twice before, and the reaction had been good. We have an idea to take it up a notch and to create some viral action online. The whole idea was pitched to Lorne Michaels, just like any other SNL writer would pitch a short film. Lorne liked it, and he made it happen, especially when he heard of all the big cameos the band had lined up for the film. It's really hard to turn down a project when Bono, Ben Stiller, Jason Schwartzman, Michael Cera, and everybody else 
is attached to it. Here's one more track from Reflector. This is We Exist. Arcade Fire and We Exist from their fourth album, Reflector. They are easily one of the most important bands in the world right now. How much further can they take this? I don't know, but it's sure cool to see a Canadian-based band leading the way, isn't it? Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. There is always stuff going on at my website, which is called a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update this thing every single day, even Christmas, with music news, opinion, music recommendations, music industry information, whatever bits of weirdness I can find. You can check several times a day, or you can just wait for the newsletter that will be in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern, Monday to Friday. It's free, but you do have to sign up. Get registered at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. If you want to send me an email, I'd like that. I read everything and respond to everything. The address is simple, alan at alancross.ca. And then there's Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google+. Many ways to connect, and we really should. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.